When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. All right. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business, where we're putting the business back into lady business. Uh, today, we have Rachel Johnson, who is the co-founder and managing partner of JNO Law. Thank you for coming, Rachel. Thank you. I'm so, so excited to be here. Um, extra special because we met because I listened to you on a podcast. I know that was uh, that was like the skim podcast I did, right? Yes, I listened to you on the skim. I was like this lawyer boss lady that worked for Jay-Z. I have to reach out to her and I DM'd you on Instagram, which is like my go-to move. Right. These people actually respond and you said I want to talk to you. Amazing. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> ladies. Never know. Ladies. I know I really loved that podcast too because um they just went in so deep. And I love Carly and Danielle anyway. I'd known them personally. So it was amazing. I hope that we can do that today for you as well. Yes. So let's go into like your background. How did you become a co-founder and you know managing partner of your own law firm? Where did you start? Yeah. So I graduated from University of Florida. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'm one of five kids. Both my parents are lawyers and none of my other siblings are lawyers. I was like, I'll try law school. Um, I went to law school and somebody the first year told me in order to get into one of these big law firms, you have to do really, really good your first year. Every other year doesn't matter. Um, so just do good your first year. So I became a complete hermit. Like my friends called me the mad scientist. And I did amazing my first year. I got, I think I had like 34 interviews. Um, and I met some attorneys at McDermott, Will and Emery, which is a very big law firm. And they liked me and hired me based on my interview and my grades first semester. And then it was like a funny joke that they got my transcript like right before I was supposed to actually start after my third year. And they're like, Rachel, like what happened? We see like C's and, you know, all this stuff. I was like, I know, but I was good. Right. And they're like, yeah, they're like, yeah, it adds character. Right. And I was like, yeah, because um, I totally just like partied and had fun and it was super social second and third year. So you started working there. How long were you yeah. there? What area of expertise are you in? Yeah. So I was in litigation actually at McDermott, Will and Emery. My group that I was working with all moved over to DLA Piper, which is one of the biggest law firms in the world um, when they launched their Miami office. So I then transferred with my group to DLA Piper 
And I was there and I just wasn't feeling fulfilled. I knew there was something just bigger out there for me. I like envisioned one day I would have my own law firm. And my friend Christina, who was out Wilson Sincini, which is a very prominent firm that represents venture-backed companies, you know, we would talk for a year on and off. And she was like, I feel the same way. We kind of encouraged each other. And finally, we were like, we're going to do this. And we decided together to do it after a year of just talking about it. There wasn't any like crazy, sophisticated business plan, no big goals. We didn't have like a pipeline list of clients. And we did it. She put her notice in first. And then I put my notice in right after. And how, about seven how years, years ago, were you practicing at, at a big law firm at the time? I was a little over four years. Oh, okay. So you're so, pretty junior at a big yeah. law firm, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was really on partner track. I feel like everybody was shocked when I gave notice. I worked super hard. I never gave indication that I was going to quit. You know, they thought I was really on partner track, but I knew deep down that I was always going to do something different. I actually started as a litigation associate as well at Hughes Hubbard and Reed. Oh my and God. I, so, you know, for like a year, another big wall street firm. And I was only there for a little over a year before I then went into entertainment law, but yes, yeah. I, I know the same thing. And I, and I transferred over. Yeah. So what was it that you two were talking about all the time that made you want to leave big law and then go to this firm? I mean, start your own firm. Yeah, we just felt like there was a different way to do it. And honestly, we didn't know. Like, we didn't know we would turn JNO into a firm with offices all over and almost 20 employees. That wasn't the plan. The plan was like, let's just do it on our own. You know, if I could make even a fraction of what I was making at Big Law, I would be happy. Um, we didn't really take any salaries the first year. We each put a certain amount of money into the firm to start the firm. And then we just started growing and people would reach out to us and was like, Hey, I need help with this business matter. Um, you know, people at DLA referred you Our actually big firms started referring us clients that they couldn't take on. And we started seeing this need very, very early on for, really great attorneys to help these fast scaling startups. Mm -hmm. And there were no firms that were doing it really well. There were big firms that could handle the IPOs and the bigger M&A transactions. And when these companies like sold, but the everyday general counsel work, even the early stage financings, it would just get lost in the details. There's so much organization. There's so much handholding that with respect to billable hours and those high billable rates, it just it didn't make sense. And that's why I think so many big firms continue to refer us clients because they just know we're a team of prior big law attorneys that do this work very, very well. Right. Yeah. So there's like there's a need for it. Right. But what about um, and you have, you know, your specialty, but what about like in culture for listeners who yeah. don't understand big law, <laughs> this is, you know, for the justice department, what I'm trying to, what we're doing is helping educate, um, women on startup, raising money, different industries, what it means. So whether that's 
you want to do it on your own. You want to join somebody. You want to hire somebody. You're looking for a career, whatever it is. Yeah. But you know, it's pretty well known within the legal industry when you are a woman in or person of color, like it's very hard to get on that partner track. And if you're not available to bill like 3000 hours a year, you're probably not going to make it, which is an insane amount of hours to yes. work. And so you have kids and everything, everything pushes you back. And um, it's just expected for reasons that's still really not known, you know, other than the fact yeah. that they have these massive offices of a massive overhead it's probably not even that necessary, but you know, anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I was lucky. Both of the firms I worked with were really supportive of women. I feel like we were part of the change. They had all these boards and they wanted to make me partner. They wanted me to stay there and stay there forever. I just, I would look at people there that were the partners and I just, I didn't see my life in their same trajectory. I knew I wanted something different. And I think what has been so important with starting JNO is realizing that work is not everything. It doesn't have to be everything. We have built our culture very slowly. We, you know, hire when we feel the need, when we feel like we are saying no to really great clients because we just want to be selective. We start thinking maybe we need another set of hands that can help us. Um, we encourage our attorneys to have passions outside of law. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our employees have something else that they're interested in, whether it's improv, playing the drums in a band or working on side hustles. Even myself as managing partner, I have a side hustle. I'm very interested in health, wellness, and I started a company called Ami that is my passion project. And I've kind of woven it into JNO. We're really big on our attorneys and our team being really healthy. That's something that was never really focused on at Big Law. Even though you're hunched over at a desk all day, they don't give you salads to eat or healthy food or encourage you to like jump on the Peloton, although big firms are starting. Like, I feel like there is a change where big firms now have a bunch of Pelotons in their office. So I feel like for anybody that is coming up um, on being a lawyer, I feel like times are changing and it's actually a really exciting time. And the kind of horror stories you heard, even about big law, it's just, it's not accurate now, especially with remote work. When I talk to new lawyers, I'm a mentor at University of Florida is where I went. I actually encourage, I'm like, if you can, I think big law is great to learn. You're learning from the best lawyers there. You learn how to craft a perfectly crafted email to really, really explain things. Um, It's a great learning tool. And I have some friends that have stayed there and have really done well. So I think it all depends on what you want for your life. I knew I wanted something different. Yeah, I agree. It's a good training ground. Um, yes, when I was 100%. in entertainment law solely, I would only really take people who had gone to like a, you know, a bigger law firm or outside and, and really got to see what it was like and the, like the perfectionism and work ethic, et cetera. And then everything was easier afterwards. So I know, <laughs> I know you really get trained so well. And it, even if you didn't do well your first year, like you totally bombed first year, I say still reach out to like the hiring partners, still reach out for somebody. If you're smart and a hard worker, they will want you. Yeah. You just might have to do a little extra pushing to get there. 
Right. So, okay, let's cut to where, you know, you are now, right. And what you're doing. Um, So many of our listeners and so many of my clients are, you know, female founded startups and, you know, aren't sure when they start something like, Hey, what a lawyer does and, you know, how they do it and how they get billed and et cetera. So let's just start with like what you do when, you know, and when somebody should be coming to you, when's that first entry point and intro point for you? Yeah. So a lot of founders obviously are very scrappy and, you know, you have an idea and you just want to execute, which is the magic of it. And you should do that. And a lawyer should never stop you from doing that. So a lot of times clients will start, they'll set up their company on an online platform. There's some good ones right now called Clerky, Stripe Atlas that you can do form your company by yourself online. There's these startup lawyers that have created these platforms. Um, it's less than $2,000 most of the time. So a lot of founders that come to us have usually already started and like done the basic incorporation process. If not, we can help them with that too. Um, I've just found lately that a lot of people do start on your, their own with the online platforms. And they usually come to us. Our sweet spot is they're ready to raise from outside investors. Wait, so let's There's, back up just a bit. Yeah. So you mean like forming an LLC or in an S corporation or a corporation, which is known as an Inc, that yes. kind of stuff. And do you find that they have done that properly, even though there's online platforms? Like, Yeah, normally you know, there's a lot. Yeah. Normally, there's a lot of cleanup. I would say 90% of our companies are Delaware C-Corps. It's what most venture funds expect when they're going to put in money. So Clerky and Stripe Atlas are kind of the two platforms I mentioned that are focused on setting up Delaware Mm C-Corps. So if you go to them, they kind of guide you in that process. Um, some of our companies come to us and you know what, they form like a Florida LLC. That's where they live and they are advised from their friend's accountant that an LLC is the best thing. That's fine. We can talk to them about potentially converting to a Delaware corporation if that's the right move for them. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is the right move to stay in LLC. So I think that initial conversation is so important that you can talk to a lawyer or an accountant and just talk it through of which entity is right for you. Right. Um, Yeah. Then the general incorporation process is actually setting up the corporate record. So putting together the bylaws, putting together what people refer to as a board of directors. You know, you hear about these fancy board meetings with a board of directors. You have to actually appoint the board and put that together. Um, And then a lot of venture-backed companies set up what's called an equity incentive plan so they can give stock options to their employees. So of course you hear of employees getting stock at like Uber, any other companies that that have IPO'd and have, you know, had a windfall because they were one of the early employees. That's typically um, through stock options. Right. Okay. So then, um, but that's usually after you've raised some money, right? When you're getting to that point or is Um, it? No, a lot of um, companies set up, like right when they incorporate, they set up uh, an equity incentive plan because they don't have that much money to pay people. 
like their consultant friends that are helping or advising them. And they want to be able to give people that are helping them build this thing in the early days, some stock options. Right. Um, And so that walks them through whether or not they should be options or shares or what's the difference in, in that? Can you talk through that? Yeah. So stock options are most typical for employees and stock options are something that is given to any service provider for the company. And the service provider can decide whether they want to exercise the stock options. So it's really important because people assume if they got stock options, they actually hold the shares. And that's not accurate. You typically have to exercise and purchase purchase their shares when you leave the company. And the typical exercise window is 90 days. So there's a lot of times we see stock options that are left on the table because somebody doesn't know that they left the company. They're like, yeah, yeah, I have options. I, you know, I signed my stock option paperwork and nobody really, you know, reminds you that you can choose to exercise those options if you want especially if you got the stock option so early on and now the value of the company has really soared. Oh my God. Yeah. I've heard I know. There's stories <laughs> about like people like, no, I own stock in, you know, Uber. I'm like, no, you don't actually. Yeah. Like, oh. did you actually exercise? Oh. Yes. Okay. But let's talk about the founder and how they set up everything and like a cap table to make sure that they are protected because that's who's coming to you. That's who your client is, right? The company and, and, you know, the founder's client. So, you know, there's a million nightmare stories about that too, with, you know, female founders or founders in general, and then they raise money and then they have hardly any equity left. And yes, yeah, it's the founder splitting up of shares is always a big thing because especially if you are coming in with co-founders, you want to do that early when the, you know, everybody's bright and fuzzy and has all the energy. Once people start working and there's differences of opinion, it's very hard to go back and change things. So a really important concept is called vesting where you don't get your shares outright. And we do this, especially when there is multiple co-founders. Typically, it's a four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff. And what that translates to is you technically don't get any of your shares until you've been with the company for a year. And you don't get all of the shares until you've been there for four years. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because it's not for everybody. You know, two founders might have decided to start a company. And after six months, somebody's like, this is not for me. I need to go back to the corporate world. I need to get a real job. I need to make a real salary. I need to have insurance benefits. You know, they don't realize the kind of sacrifices you make as a founder. So it's so important to have vesting. Um, A lot of the platforms do talk about it, but that's also why it's great to chat with a lawyer that has done this before and knows what can come up, especially if there's multiple founders. Yeah, I know. You know, there's so much put on this, like, oh, you know, finding your company, be a founder, be a founder, be a founder. But ultimately it's like nothing happens overnight. Overnight successes are usually seven to 10 years. Right. And, you know, and it's a grind and then you get money in and then people are overseeing everything you do. And yeah, sometimes things happen in life you know, maybe you don't want it sometimes, you know, there could be an, you know, a life event that happens that forces you out. So well, yeah. And companies change. Like yeah, we've seen some leaders, you know, are great in the early stages, but then as a company evolves, maybe they even have a 
revelation that like they want somebody else to run all the people or, you know, they have different interests. It can all change. So it's so important at the beginning to make sure that everything's documented so it can, you know, be easy, as easy as possible right. when people decide to change paths. No, that's, I mean, it's really smart. It's really smart to do that, you know, vesting over a certain period of time because, this is where you're talking about actual equity. These are not options you're talking about, right? So they're going to own this. And if they go away, they decide that they want to leave after one year. Like you don't want them to own a portion of the company because you now may need to raise money, right? And then exactly. less to give to those people. There's yes. only so much, right? Yeah. Yes. As opposed to options, this what founders get is typically called restricted stock. It's restricted because it's subject to vesting and you do purchase your shares. So we have our founders, you know, if there's a 90% founder and a 10% founder, you actually write a check to the company for your shares for $90 because, you know, most companies before they're formed are worth 0.0001, you know, nothing, but you do actually write a check for your shares when you're getting restricted stock as a founder. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, And then what happens? Okay. So then let's say we have all that done. We have our founders, then we're going to raise some money. Like what is that called? What, what area, when do you get involved and what kinds of air, like the paperwork that is. Yeah. So that, so that's really our sweet spot. A lot of founders do come to us for that early formation, um, especially, you know, founders that have done this before and they're like, I want a lawyer to handle. I know I don't want to, you know, do it myself. But our sweet spot is really when you're starting to think about fundraising because it is scary and it's an unknown world for a lot of people. There's terms and, you know, safes and convertible notes and cap tables that people that aren't in this venture world have no clue about. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really important for us as a firm to educate our founders when they are raising for the first time. We don't just send them a lot of documents and say, forward this to, you know, your 20 investors on your list. We actually want them to understand what these documents do for their company, for their equity, and what implications there are. So I think it's really, really important if you're going to raise money to talk to a lawyer for sure. You know, securities implications of who you can raise from and who you can't raise from. So you want to make sure you do it right from the beginning. Right. And so well, that's a great point though, too, is the education. Right. And what I always tell my clients, it's like, they're like, well, I don't know this. I'm like, well, you, you shouldn't, that's not what you do. You know what I mean? I don't know how to be an editor in chief of something. I don't know how to be a <laughs> yeah. XYZ, you know, head of marketing, but I know what I know. So, but that's the whole beauty of it, right? You can hire people to do it. They're experts. You get educated enough to understand where you can make the right choices and know if you're making choices, you know, later on what, what it actually means. But you need to be educated from the very beginning because it's really hard to claw everything back once it's done. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, we do so much cleanup. You know, if companies do think they, you know, thought they issued shares to their 10 friends that were helping the company three years ago. And really, there was no board consent. There was no actual stock paperwork giving their friends shares. And they've already raised money. And it's like, There's no, it actually doesn't exist. Those shares that you gave to your friends. So it's, we see a lot of cleanup stories and it's not meant to scare anybody. Like most things can be cleaned up. 
better to reach out to a lawyer sooner rather than later. And most people have an intro call for you for free. Like at JNO, we will talk to somebody. We will find out if we're the right fit. If we're not, we'll try and get them in the right hands. Um, there's no harm in just trying to be like, am I on the right track? Is what I'm doing correct? Right. And uh, so what is the right fit? Like what kind of companies do you work with? So we work with companies that are about to raise their money, their money from outside investors, typically. That's not to say that all of our companies are raising from outside investors. Some of our most successful companies have been able to maybe raise a very small friends and family round and turn profitable. So we're trying to change the conversation that you do not have to go the venture route to be high growth. We have some clients that have, you know, bootstrapped or really just turned their company profitable, not the old fashioned way. But if you think about it by putting in their own money and starting to get customers and, you know, they don't have to deal with the board and the questions and the, you know, show us a revenue, show us where this money is going type questions that you do get once you enter um, the world of getting outside investors because they deserve to know where their money is going. So I think our, at JNO, we're focused on high growth companies. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're starting like one hair salon or, you know, a smaller mom and pop type shop, we're probably not the right fit. We have amazing lawyers that we can recommend for that. Um, but we're really focused on high growth companies because it's what our team does well. Can you talk about any of your clients um, that you work with that you can, that you're like, you watch succeed or grow or something from the beginning? Yeah. One of our um, amazing clients is called Fanjoy in LA and they have grown and done such amazing things. Um, they put together curated um, fan boxes for celebrities uh -huh. and stars. And he's been with us since the beginning, you know, since almost seven years of starting JNO, he started with us. We have seen him through all phases. Um, we have two main teams, our corporate team and our contracts team that can help these companies as they scale. And we have recently launched an employment group because we find that the most important issues are people issues and yeah. the HR matters and, you know, the sticky terminations. And that's when we can be so valuable. So I want to talk about the difference between corporate contracts and employment. So, you know, the audience can understand why you need different areas. You know, I always liken like attorneys to doctors, like you go to your general doctor <laughs> yes. every day, but like you need a specialty. Like if I need a trademark, I need to go to somebody specific. I need startup paperwork at somebody specific. Like, you know, yeah, um, that's so yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy you brought that up because a lot of clients come to us and they're like, but I was re referred by my like uncle to this corporate attorney and he helped me with my startup paperwork. And looking at everything, I'm like, did you, does this person represent high growth companies? Have they dealt with any companies that have raised from VCs? And they're like, no, but they were a corporate. Yeah. And it's such a different world now. Yeah. You really, really want somebody that is specialized in this because honestly, they can do it more efficiently. Something that could take another firm five hours probably can take our firm one to two hours because we do it all day, every day. Exactly. And we know what's market. Yeah. So we can easily say like, that's not right. This is, this is more market. You should talk about this. Um, and really point things out. So corporate specifically deals with 
all the corporate governance. So making sure there's board meetings, meeting minutes, making sure anybody that you have issued shares or stock to, it's actually properly documented and approved by the board, which again is like one of the major pitfalls we see is people just are promising shares or equity via email. It's like you get 2%. And there is no documentation, no follow-up. A lot of times there has to be, you know, a check of security laws to see if there's filings required. And then also in the corporate bucket is outside financings. So when you start raising money from friends and family in the early days or start your Series A through, you know, later stage financings, our corporate and deal team can help with that. Um, So that's kind of the corporate bucket. Um, Contracts and privacy is once you have grown and you're starting to get customers, you likely want to have a master services agreement or a terms of service on your website or something that all your customers agree to. Um, So we help put together those forms. If you have big negotiations and somebody sends you a red line of those forms, our team can help you and talk through um, any pushback and what's needed, along with privacy issues. We have privacy attorneys because um, that is obviously big if you're collecting any personal data. Right, exactly. Yeah. Customers. And then employment. Yes. Employment is always moving because we have new hires that are coming on. So you want to make sure you have an offer letter and employment agreement. Um, In this day of remote work, you're likely not going to have all your employees based in New York, even if your headquarters are there. So you want to make sure that you know the law in Montana, in Nevada, in wherever your employees actually reside, because that is typically the law that governs, which is really important. Right. Right. So there's a lot of things that can. And then if you don't do these things right. Right. I was going over with somebody, a startup, like somebody who who did a startup and they were like, I over I did not hire an attorney in the beginning. And what I thought I saved, I paid five times much in getting it all like properly done, whether that is the, you know, employees issues, contract issues, you know, all, you know, obviously startup paperwork or in the long run, if you did not set it up right, you know, and the cap table and you're not getting the right equity, what that can mean for you down the road. So it's so important from the very beginning, you know, to have somebody like you and JNO Law to be there by your side from the very beginning. Yes. It's so important. Like I always say, reach out sooner rather than later. I know it's probably what's like keeping you up at night. Like, oh my gosh, my cap table. I don't even know what it looks like. But if you just start talking about it, it doesn't have to be too scary. Like you can do it over time. It doesn't have to be this big overhaul. that's going to take up your entire life to get things straight. Um, Sometimes cleanup can take a week and we're like, this isn't that bad. You need one board consent. We can clean everything up. Um, And sometimes it's a deeper dive. Right. Right. And then I, another thing that's like, oh my God, it makes me like, (laughs) is when I hear like there's this great startup, female founded, and everybody wants to put money in, which we know is rare since like 2% of women get venture funding. 
And then, you know, they get millions of dollars and then the investors are like, but, you know, you need to use one of these, you know, Silicon Valley firms and they're charged $250,000 for like seed paperwork, which is insane. It's insanity. You know, yes. and like that does not need to be that way. It's like, yes. it's not even like, yeah, I'm hoping that we're changing that, especially because I think. A lot of the VCs now, I mean, JNO is making a name for itself. We are among the Cooleys and the Wilsons and the Gundersons, or, you know, I think we're gaining the respect that people know that we do very good work. And VCs are actually recommending that their portfolio companies start using us. At the end of the day, it's their money. You know, they've invested know, in these right? companies and <laughs> yeah. they should want to, first of all, have the best lawyers and the best team working and making sure this company succeeds. And also that their money isn't being, you know, bled. The worst thing we see is a company, young company raises, you know, a couple million dollars. And in a year it's gone because they didn't, you know, closely manage it. And I think that's what's so hard to see. Right. Yeah. No, it's heartbreaking. It's, you know, but um, thankfully there's people like you, law firms that are female led, better cultures and experienced and can give the great advice for, you know, these companies to thrive. And, you know, from the very beginning, Yes. And we have a lot of, everybody comes to us and they were like, oh, you guys actually have a lot of guys on your team. I'm like, yes. I'm like, yes, we hire everybody. We have, yes, we have guys on our team um, that are great. And honestly, they love the culture too. Nobody wants to feel like they are just, you know, working all day, that there's no bright side. We work with really cool companies. You know, I sometimes wake up and feel like, I'm the luckiest lawyer in the world because I really feel like I go to work helping founders build their dreams rather than just being a lawyer. Like, I feel like if we can change that mindset and yes, you have to do documents. Yes. You have to draft these emails to perfectly explain these concepts, but how cool is it that we're helping all of these founders build their dream companies and hopefully make it one day. Yeah, exactly. No, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I usually ask like advice you give, you know, or things they've done wrong, but I, I think you actually already said it. With <laughs> yes. thing. So it's like, yes, here's the newsflash. Make sure you hire somebody that you like and, and trust as an attorney to be your partner throughout your entire startup journey. And from and from the beginning, really, you know, I would think from the very beginning, but um, yeah, um, at least cultivate yeah. that relationship. Exactly. Like you don't have to, they, we would tell you, ask. yeah, yes. We would tell you, you know, maybe to use one of these platforms right now and keep in touch if you have questions on it, but it doesn't hurt to start a relationship with somebody that you feel like you can trust. Right. And don't be scared of all the stuff that you did wrong and improperly because everyone has done it. Everyone has done it and it's better to clean it up sooner rather than later. Yes. Yes. And if you're a young, young lawyer, times are changing. It is a really exciting time, I think, in the legal profession. So hopefully this can inspire people to keep with it. Amazing. Well, I always ask this one last question um, because it's all women on here and we have traditionally gotten really, really shitty advice. (laughs) What is the worst advice you've ever received? I think when I was leaving big law, I had people tell me, you will fail. Do you see how many hustling lawyers are out there 
at the courthouse, at this, at the, at there, you will fail. Like, do you want to do this, Rachel? And I think that lit a fire under my ass. And I was like, I will not fail. And I remember somebody told me like, you cannot have a plan B. This is like your thing. You're going for it. And I feel like now I'm like, gosh, I have like, I've really impressed even, you know, me and Christina talk about it. We never imagined this. Like we, like I said, we were going to be happy just the two of us making even a fraction. It wasn't even about that. It was about something so much bigger. And now looking at like the culture we created, the people, the big law people that we are helping um, come and join JNO. Like that's what is so awesome. And I think people, you know, are like, wow. And people have said to me, wow, Rachel, if you can do it, I feel like I can do it too. I'm like, I don't know if that's a compliment, but yes, you can freaking do it too. Yeah. No, it is. If you can see it, you can be it. So it is. Yeah. Take it. Yes. That's what it is. (laughs) So if people want to find you, which I'm sure after hearing this, many will, how do they find you? Yeah. So email me, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L at J-O-Law.co. Um, I'm always happy to brainstorm with people like women founders that are worried or nervous. Um, I can talk to you like, you know, we do not charge her consultations. That is not our thing. Right. Um, so reach out to us. Our website is www.jolaw.co. And where are your offices based? I know you're in Florida. So I'm in South Florida. I'm very excited about like all the buzz on Miami. Um, We're hosting a dinner for some female founders and investors down there next month. Um, So I'm in South Florida. We have an office in New York City. We have attorneys in Boston, D.C., Texas. We had California that moved because of COVID. Um, But we have, yes, Illinois, we have people all over and it's great. We're all, you know, virtual and work when we want and where we want. Thank you so much. So everyone reach out, get your paperwork all together so you can preserve that um, stock that you, for your big exit. Um, (laughs) Yes. So much, Rachel. Thanks so much. To this episode of taking care of lady business, make sure to write in and let us know if there's any other topics you want. And until then I'm Jennifer justice.